Hello, thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. I'm Todd, and this is a new segment of the show called Question and Reflection. It's a little different than a question and answer session because I'm not an expert in anything, so I don't want to give the impression that I could have the definitive answers or a final solution to a problem. But I am very curious, and I do think by being vulnerable and sharing our perspectives, we help each other, and we encourage ongoing, open, good-spirited, respectful dialogue. And that has always been the goal of the podcast. So today I'm responding to questions that have been submitted through the Patreon community, people who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. And if you'd like to do so and submit a question and check out the bonus content, You can follow the link in the description of this episode. It's patreon.com forward slash kindmind. So here we go. First question. How can meditation help with anxiety? For this question, I would like to share three maybe less common or even unexpected views about the relationship between meditation and anxiety. First off, one way to... interpret anxiety is to think of a school of fish. A school of fish is a collection of smaller fish that swim together to appear larger and therefore to intimidate or ward off predators. But with a closer look, you can see that there's just a bunch of small fish. And if a predator were to go after even one of them, the whole school of fish would disperse. This is somewhat how anxiety is experienced, in the sense that it is a collection of symptoms, and when they all come together, we interpret it as anxiety, and it become, can become a problem. So symptoms like elevated blood pressure, temperature, rapid heart rate, and um, fast, shallow, irregular, arrhythmic breathing. But If our heart rate was elevated while exercising or respiration had increased, we wouldn't necessarily say or feel like we're having anxiety. It's when all these symptoms come together and there's the cognitive appraisal of our emotion that we feel overwhelmed. So meditation can go after one or all of these systems like respiration. It can help to regulate our breathing and that can help the whole experience of anxiety begin to dissipate. Secondly, anxiety, like all emotions, are algorithms programmed into us through evolution to help us deal with the environment, to move towards pleasure or a stimulus that would help with our survival, or to move away from it, or to fight it. And that's what anxiety does. It helps prepare us for fight or flight from some threat in the environment. So meditation is introspection. It is meta-attention. When we take our awareness and we direct it inward to perceive without judgment our own thoughts, our own sensations, our inner experience. But that would be a luxury in the grand scheme of things in terms of evolution. Because if you were looking inward, it it would only be because the environment was safe enough to do so. So it's almost a biohack. And research supports this. fMRI studies of the brain of subjects while 
naming their emotion. So to be able to tell researchers what emotion you're experiencing would require some amount of self-awareness. And as soon as the emotion is named in these experiments, the, the MRI can show that there is a reduction in activity in regions like the amygdala, which is the almond-shaped structure deep in our brain that regulates our so-called negative emotions like fear, anger, and anxiety. And thirdly, and this applies more to anxiety disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, I'd like to share a short story from history to, to explain this third benefit. In 1934, there was an earthquake in India in the state of Bihar. It was a very strong earthquake, but there was, wasn't a lot of damage or bodily harm to victims. However, in the aftermath of that earthquake, something strange happened that perplexed scientists. The people started to widely circulate, you could say a rumor or a projection or prophecy that something much worse was coming in terms of natural disaster. And this conflicted with the prevailing psychological theories of the time, which were basically positive reinforcement, like Pavlovian conditioning. Something is good, or something makes you feel good, and you want more of that, you go towards that. So why would people be making up beliefs about the future that are negative that make you feel more anxious or worse? Well, a psychologist named Leon Festinger came along and hypothesized that it was due to cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance states that Within one's attitude, the thoughts, beliefs, the way we feel towards something and our behavior and what we know to be true about the environment needs to be consistent. Otherwise, we feel very uncomfortable and we will go to great lengths to resolve it. In the case of this earthquake, the people felt anxious and afraid, but the environment had returned to stability. So there was an inconsistency there. To resolve it, the people's beliefs about the future and impending doom made their inner experience consistent. And so that's what cognitive dissonance can do to us. In this case, because it was a mass trauma, it was easy to be studied. But in anxiety disorder, this is everyone's private nightmare. And so I say this in a general way, but with the understanding that everybody's anxiety is so deeply personal. And that's why it can be hard to get the help and support that one needs. But we do know that when a person feels deeply anxious, they, they do have worrisome thoughts about the future. So through meditation, we can work with cognitive dissonance in the almost opposite manner. So in the case of the earthquake, people felt afraid the environment was relatively safe. With anxiety disorder, we can create peace in the body through meditation. And regardless of how the environment is, it can change our relationship to the world around us and to our thoughts about the future. So as people continue to practice and calmer feelings and regulation to our systems and homeostasis is achieved, then there's an inconsistency with thoughts that the future is going to be bad or I'm going to fail or this job isn't going to work out or this relationship's not going to work out. Those thoughts start to realign with the peace that a person is feeling. In the beginning, it takes time. Meditation is unique 
uh, compared to other coping strategies, whether they are adaptive or maladaptive, because when you cope, you have to keep doing more of that to achieve the same relief, whether it's self-harm or drugs or alcohol. And this is why I don't think of meditation as a coping skill, because in the beginning, you might have to give a little more effort to get some calmness, to get some peace. But as you continue to practice, you actually need less time to achieve deeper feelings of peace, and they last longer and longer. You think of something like a stress ball. Stress ball could help somebody deal with impulses to self-harm and to cope with anxiety and the, the anxious feelings or the anxious urges that come with that. But if you're just walking around all the time, squeezing a stress ball, and then all of a sudden you have a panic attack, the stress ball is not going to help. However, this isn't true with meditation. So put forth a little effort, practice consistently, and as you become more peaceful, it will change your relationship to the world. It will change your attitude uh, to one of optimism and a person can feel like they can create meaning with whatever they are experiencing. This is how you know when somebody is really doing the inner work. A person wants to generate peace, and most importantly, they want to do it in their immediate environment. So it can all be a show when somebody is trying to build great peace in the world while their personal life is in disarray. But for one who is really generating that inner peace through a contemplative practice like meditation every step becomes a peace movement from peace inside to peace builder in the community. So experiment with this and see how cognitive dissonance can be applied to help you achieve a a life of health and well-being. The second question, can meditation be harmful? There are some instances where it might not be wise to practice formal meditation with eyes closed, looking inward. For instance, with schizophrenia, where somebody struggles with hallucinations, looking inward or closing one's eyes could be so disturbing that it makes that condition worse for the person. Or you think of other cases of post-traumatic stress disorder or having quote-unquote inner demons turning towards that and having flashbacks and having so many intense negative feelings arise is not going to be conducive to building attention and concentration. That doesn't mean that a person can't meditate or can't benefit from meditation. It just means that's probably not the best starting point. Perhaps a walking meditation or a mindfulness practice with eyes open perceiving things in the environment where the environment is really peaceful, like in nature. So in these other conditions, it would be like telling somebody, let's start your meditation practice in a haunted house, in a real haunted house. And when the person naturally struggles with that, they, they might think, okay, I'm not cut out for meditation. So find the environment and the space that's conducive, and then either work outward from there or inward from there so that ultimately you can pay attention to whatever phenomena arises intense weak scary or pleasant and we can observe all of the phenomena with non-judgment as we build our meditation practice and the next question do you think addiction is a disease 
or a mindset? Well, in, in my experience and in my study and in my work with people struggling with addiction, I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. Uh, but I do know that there can be a lot of stigma with addiction relegating it entirely to one's mindset and the power of will and choice. But there, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it fits a disease model just like other conditions that we categorize as a disease because something is happening in the brain in a substance use disorder. You can see dysfunction, even damage to circuitry like the reward circuitry or the decision-making regions of the brain. And in some cases, it, it could take a long time for those parts of the brain to be repaired or to, to heal. So sometimes when we're talking about behavioral health or mental health, people forget that we're still talking about anatomical correlates in the body, in the brain. But I don't want to dismiss the mindset either, because what is a mindset? A mindset is essentially not totally independent of having a brain. And so I think mindset is a matter of genetics. I don't get to choose my brain. And so what I'm at risk of uh, may be different than the next person. Something like 85% of college kids are binging alcohol. Now, will 85% of that population have an addiction for the rest of their life? That's not the case. That's not what we observe to be true. So why do some of them? Well, because everybody has different genetics, different brains, different wirings, different family histories. So one part of mindset is the genetics. What kind of brain are we working with? What kind of traits are we working with? And then the health of that system. If, if I have an injury, for instance, that's going to affect my mindset. If I have a brain injury, that's going to affect my mindset. And the nature, the environment, what kind of messages am I getting? What, what is my lifestyle like? And, and what ideas actually get downloaded into my brain, into my consciousness? Because I can't really use ideas or information that I have no access to. So I think this gives a little bit of a broader understanding of mindset. So this is only to say that we can use our mindset, we can listen to something like this and then put ourselves in a situation where we're going to get more information, more knowledge. And of course, that's going to have an effect on how we take care of, of a condition like addiction. The same would be true with any other disease like diabetes. If you don't have knowledge about it, how can one have the mindset to monitor blood sugar, to make changes in the diet? So you know, people struggle accepting addiction as a disease because of the lifestyle component, but so many diseases, maybe all diseases have a lifestyle component. We still think of it as a disease. So do not dismiss the mindset. And I also want to give a warning here that I think in the age of social media, there can be a lot of conflicting and misinformation out there. Sometimes I see people talking about mental illness in an inaccurate manner. All human beings will go through emotional experiences and behavioral experiences. Like I said, 85% of kids are binging alcohol in college. That doesn't mean they all have an addiction. They might 
be engaging in risky behavior, but that doesn't mean they meet criteria for substance use disorder or disease. But when people go through episodes like this, including depression or grief, those people sometimes think that they know something intimate about recovery from these diseases or these conditions or these mental health disorders while never actually meeting criteria for the disorder. So like I said, everybody can feel deeply sad or sorrowful after a loss or after a breakup. People can go through a period of using drugs and alcohol in in a risky manner. So then when people change their life or reform their life or heal from their grief and tell others how it works, well, that strategy may not be applicable and may not be effective for others. It may not be even appropriate for somebody who meets criteria for disease. So I think it's wise to be cautious with information that we take in from others. And if you're struggling with addiction or any other mental health problem, it's still best, I think, to consult a professional to see a doctor as well. One more thing about addiction. When we are using anything to numb our feelings, Brene Brown once said that in Power of Vulnerability, you can't just select the feelings you want to numb. So it's really important, I think, in trying to manage problem use to learn how to feel, to open up channels of feeling. Because when you numb your sorrow, when you numb your grief, when you numb your sadness, when you numb your fears, you're numbing all feelings, which also means we're closing ourselves off to joy, to gratitude, to inspiration. And something like mindfulness can really be a valuable tool in this process because mindfulness is not just about feeling better, but getting better at feeling. And in the beginning of this kind of healing or transition work, so many feelings will be coming through because it's almost like they've been locked up in a closet. But as a person works through this in in a program or with support or with a therapist and gets that process flushed through, well then, you know, then it's just a matter of being able to feel as feelings arise. And it's, it's a lot more like the weather to bring your umbrella when it's raining, to step out in the sunshine when it's warm, and to just be more in tune with your, with your body and your mind. Okay, the next question. What do you think of cryptocurrency? So I'll keep this one short because I'm really happy to, to tell you that I'm going to be recording a conversation for the Live Free or Dialogue part of this show with author and entrepreneur Jeff Booth, who has a fantastic book called The Price of Tomorrow. And he's also very knowledgeable about cryptocurrency and has a view that I I tend to agree with. So I'll be sharing that next month. Uh, so just a few thoughts here. I am no expert in at all in this, and I, I don't have strong views about investing in cryptocurrency or how to invest. But I'm curious about it, and I do think that there's some serious philosophical implications of 
the advent of cryptocurrency and probably the author of Bitcoin in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis probably saw the, the bank bailouts as a real serious problem and evidence of crony capitalism. So I, I do think the, the idea of peer-to-peer finance um, and currency provides some hope for humanity and says something about the trust in the institutions. Jeff Booth in his book, which we'll talk about soon in our conversation, actually walks readers through um, a scenario where the banks aren't bailed out in 2009 and how, yes, it would be scary, yes, it would be intense and overwhelming, but how things would restructure and why true capitalism actually would call for that kind of cleansing when there was that kind of bad behavior, really bad acting. And, and so when we say that this is like late stage capitalism or how destructive capitalism is, it's really hard to know because capitalism in theory would, wouldn't operate in this way, in the way that it does in, in, in our country and in the West. Real value is rewarded. Hard work would be rewarded in true capitalism. So I look forward to talking more about that with Jeff. Uh, then I also want to say that the name, the terminology cryptocurrency, I think has negative connotation and generates instinctive psychological distancing because crypto, crypto sounds hidden or insidious. But I think the truth could be that it's, it's very much the opposite of that. So I look forward to sharing more about this soon. Next question. Does working in the mental health field make personal relationships easier to deal with? Well, when you're teaching groups of people like I do in my work or teaching groups of patients or or teaching employees or staff at schools about communication and, and strategies for wellness in our relationships, obviously, I think it's really important to be applying those concepts. How can we teach if, if we're not intimate with the, the practical knowledge of those skills? So in my case, I don't even feel comfortable teaching people about things that I don't practice myself. So in that sense, I think I have understanding of the dynamics of relationships but I wouldn't say that makes it easier because I, I just think that relationships are challenging by definition. It's challenging to, to compromise, to cooperate. That doesn't mean that it's not inspiring and that it's not filled with many life lessons and, and so many meaningful experiences, no matter how difficult relationships can be. We're all so different. It's just that it's so worth the effort because the love, the support, the creativity that can blossom from personal relationships is just so beautiful. And we are social animals. I think we're designed to, to be together, to work together. So I'm grateful that I've been able to learn more about how relationships work. I still feel like I have a long way to go in understanding myself and relating to others in a healthier manner and in a wiser and more compassionate, more patient manner. But certainly being in this field uh, keeps me motivated to do so. 
When it comes to trusting another, how can I believe in their trust instead of, instead of simply knowing it? Well, if you're entering into a relationship, especially like a, um, a romantic relationship or partnership, that relationship is basically as strong as the trust is. And if you don't trust another person, then it's going to be pretty miserable, I think. And if you really think about how all of our experiences have unfolded in life, we've probably been able to trust way more than we, we might have actually in practice. All the times that people really didn't cheat you, didn't lie to you, didn't steal from you, didn't manipulate you. It's a lot. It's probably billions of times um, we've been treated all right, and sometimes people have tried to take advantage of us or betrayed our trust. And yet, it only takes a few betrayals for us to really struggle with trust. But I do think it's, it's healthy to start from a place of trust. And when people give you signs that it's not safe to, to trust them, then you reframe it or you move people around in the circles of trust or circles of boundaries. We have an inner circle and people in that inner circle ought to be those who have really shown up in our life with non-judgment and respect and safety and love and so on. And when they betray any of those, then they need to move further out, which just means we don't share our personal information. We're not able to be as close with them. And when people who are in the periphery are showing up in your life and respecting you and uh, proving to you that your inner life, your, your emotional life, your vulnerability is safe with them, then we ought to let them come closer. Next question. With the renewed onset of research and neuroscience on treating trauma, and given your knowledge of addiction, do you have any opinions about the use of psychoactives, psychedelics, as not only psychological therapeutics, but also for psycho-spiritual expansion? I've read the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. This is about the history of the study of psychedelics and their therapeutic use. And the research is very compelling that it ought to play a prominent role in transforming the mental health of, of our world. Considering that something like 40 million adults in America meet criteria for an anxiety disorder, I think we ought to be taking these studies very seriously. We, we ought to invest more and find ways to invest more in understanding psychedelics and their uh, role in mental health recovery. But there's not a lot of money to be made in patients getting better after one or two psychedelic trips while working with a psychotherapist. So I can see why there isn't a strong financial incentive for this to grow. But reading Michael Pollan's book, and I know he has a new book out that deals with this more, and looking at the scientific literature, uh, such as the use of psilocybin with uh, veterans with PTSD, 
and seeing how up to more than 70% of the subjects were more or less symptom-free after two psilocybin uh, psychotherapy sessions. And that was true even a year or two later, I think, in some of these studies. Well, I mean, that's just compelling empirical data that can't be ignored, in my opinion. So people sometimes ask me for direction about this. I, I don't have any associations with, with uh, clinicians doing psychotherapy and, and integrating psychedelics. But I, I know that Oregon has legalized the use of some psychedelics uh, like psilocybin and maybe LSD, but you can find clinicians in private practice there or, or with um, with offices where you can learn more about it and, and maybe it's worth it for some people. Now, you know, throughout my life, I've always had a lot of concern about the the influence of drugs on my mind, which is why you know, I really love meditation because I feel like it's not as intense as quickly. When you sit for meditation, something might happen or nothing might happen, or it may take a long time for more intense transcendental experiences to unfold. But when you use psychedelics, like boom, something's going to happen. But I do think for some people, and and I do think people know who they are in terms of whether or not psychedelics are right for them. For me, the reservation, at least at this time in my life, tells me it's just not the time. And for others, they just know they have to do it. And it really doesn't matter what I say because I think they're going to do it. But if you think of the risk to the mind and then you think about this as a therapeutic intervention, well... The thing we would be worried about with losing our mind or a bad trip is pretty much the place where some people already are with depression and anxiety. I think it's important to understand that whatever can happen from a drug probably has already happened and is the condition of somebody else's mind without drugs. Because drugs are not neurochemicals themselves they affect the neurochemicals that are already in the brain. Just as a sad movie affects our serotonin levels and we can have a sad experience. So I guess what I'm saying is that the drugs promote certain changes with the neurochemicals and people who are really suffering with mental illness already have some kind of neurochemical imbalance that is creating a hell in their mind. So if there's the possibility that therapeutic intervention with psychedelics could prompt them into a much better mental state, that's something that we we really ought to explore and understand better. All right, the next question. Is our political process broken? Obviously, we can all see the deep political division and discord I think it's creating a lot of turmoil in families. It's tearing families apart, actually. The political process mostly is this two-party system. And even when people go outside of those two ideologies, it's still interpreted as one continuum. 
And all this does is create a bipolar structure, but from a personality standpoint, it's much more like borderline personality disorder. And it allows our politicians to basically, or actually requires our politicians to basically campaign with the message, I'm not the other guy or gal. And then you don't have to make real progress. You're just fighting the other pole, essentially. The possible solution to this could be something like ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting is happening in some elections at some levels and in some states, I think like Alaska. So it would be good to see how the citizens feel about this, where, where it's in use for different elections. And the, the effects, the results, the, the changes in those communities. But ranked choice is essentially where you can make multiple votes. You can cast most, multiple votes on a ballot. And if your number one choice isn't viable, the way that, that it would all play out, it adds up number one votes for different candidates. But if your top choice isn't viable, it essentially takes you to the next one. And the beauty of this is that everybody could vote with their heart rather than voting for the lesser of two evils. It always disturbs me when people feel like there was somebody on the ballot that they really loved, but they couldn't vote for them simply because they don't want that candidate to be a spoiler. It wasn't realistic for that candidate to win. But I just don't feel like that's democratic. And I think ranked choice can solve this. So basically... We need to understand how this is operating in different places and if, there, if this is something that the people would really get behind. Because then you really encourage third, fourth, fifth party candidates to enter in and to become viable, which, is, which reflects what it's like in other healthier democracies that have many parties. And then if there's an idea that is effective or that 60-70% of the population resonate with well then then that idea can really work and people can vote with their conscience something else to consider here the the way the financing works for campaigns when big pharma can invest 267 million this year in lobbying against reducing drug prices especially for the elderly and you can look on OpenSecrets.com and you can see which even Democratic candidates, like in California, Congress people involved with this legislation, have 100,000, six figures of campaign com contributions from these lobbyists. To me, it seems like a fundamental conflict of interest. If this group is financing your campaign, you're just not in position, you're not qualified to draft laws that regulate those industries. So if we could make those changes, then there could be hope for the political process. But I'd love to see a future where the parties aren't like groupthink or mob think, actually. And we could just evaluate candidates based on their ideas, based on their their history, their track record, and the, the system behind them wouldn't matter as much because in reality, between independence and third party, it's something like almost half the country or more 
is, is represented in, in, among independents. So something needs to change. A couple more. I've recently been th thinking a lot about creativity as an integral part in change and growth. What are your thoughts on this? What are the components of creativity? Um, well, yes, I do think creativity is so essential for our personal growth. One of the problems in our culture is that uh, the commercialization of art and art schools. Leo Tolstoy said in What is Art that one of the worst things that happened to art was schools for art. He said always, the best art was always peasant art. Basically, I think what he was trying to say is that we have a right to create in the same way that we have a right to make our own food. And we make our own food without any real worry about how good we are at it. I mean, this would be like people saying, I'm not going to make myself a sandwich because I would never become a gourmet chef. And that's how people really feel about creativity, especially in my work with people in recovery. They will often say, I don't want to draw this because I suck at drawing or suck at art. But there are some really powerful features of creating art for our psychological well-being. When you make anything, you have to make decisions. And when people are stuck emotionally or lacking inspiration or resilience, they have a hard time making decisions. They lack confidence. The brain doesn't differentiate, though, between decisions for our life, decisions for our art. So you make a painting. You've got to make a thousand decisions. I had this experience when I was recovering from a loss and experiencing a lot of grief. My brother encouraged me to do a little woodworking for the first time in my life, and I made a table with some, with some recycled pallets. And by the time I finished, I felt so much lighter, so much clearer, and ready to make new decisions for my life. When you complete any creative project, the brain releases dopamine, gives a sense of achievement, but dopamine is also a motivating hormone, so it gives you energy and the aspiration to go forward, to go to the next thing. Are creative thinkers considered fringe thinkers? The way it is now, yes, creativity is on the fringe because commercialism is almost diametrically opposed to creativity. Commercial pursuits in the arts always involve repeating what's already been done. I think that's why you see in film, like it's, it's almost like every other movie is a remake. And... Yeah, it can allow for creativity within the remake, but the basic premise is that we're not doing something new. And you find that in the music industry, it's very painful for me in the music, being in the music industry to uh, endure some, some of this. I, I think in the past there were investors, there were labels and executives and, and those that really trusted the so-called fringe thinkers to bring about something new. Hey, we don't know what this is going to be, but we're going to trust the artist. And I think that's, that's essentially gone. I think these banks, these artist banks essentially is what they are. They look to control. So they're going to try to invest in somebody who's very young. That's why you see all the awards are going to go to kids as if mastery happens in art in the beginning and you get worse and worse throughout your life. That makes no sense. So yeah, because of the way culture is operating, with its obsession with greed and money, creative thinkers are on the fringe.
And the last question for this session. How does one stop feeling shame for being unhappy? You know, in many ways, this is a really beautiful question because there's so much inequality and disparity and division in our world. One ought to ask themselves, what does it mean to be well-adjusted in that environment? What does it mean to be well-adjusted to disparity? So I'll just simply say that I do think shame can become toxic. So whatever emotion arises within us, through mindfulness and meditation, we can practice acceptance. And then you'll find that our emotions don't necessarily get so complicated. Like we get anxiety and it would pass except we become anxious about being anxious. We become afraid about being afraid. We become depressed about being depressed. So we get a very complicated sense of overwhelm. But otherwise, I think our emotions could be a lot more like the weather. So I would start by practicing non-judgment. Whatever unhappiness is there, allow it to be there in the same way that you could sit back and you could watch storm clouds roll in. And without chasing it, without hiding from it, without pushing it away, you, you may actually find there's some beauty in the intensity of the weather. I also recently wrote a poem about this, I think, and I started sharing some of it in our last Kind Mind gathering, and I think I have it concluded now, and I hope to add it to my book of Wisdom Reflections, which will probably be published early next year. But this poem is called The Long Funeral, and I'll just recite this, and, and I hope it gives some wisdom about this question, and we'll conclude with this poem. The world is like a long funeral. The whole context is impermanence. Look around. All in attendance are the bereaved. It is easy to miss, but many here are privately grieving behind their eyes. It is not just the funeral of others, but also our own, slowly unfolding. Because as soon as you are born, you begin to die. Death is in the name of the game. Life and death. Still, we miscalculate how ephemeral all experience is, just as clouds on the horizon can be mistaken for mountains. We often neglect the weight of our neighbor's loss while absorbed in other business. Therefore, you do not have to put a premium on feeling good. Under these conditions, it's not even appropriate at times. Rather, peace, compassion, wisdom, and kindness make up the proper funeral attire, demeanor, arrangement, and offering. This is not morbid because there are still plenty of moments throughout to celebrate, laugh, embrace, accept, and transcend. It is just much sweeter and serendipitous when levity is allowed to come naturally, instead of hunting for your own happiness as the modus to deny death and its implications. <laughs> 